0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. As always, my co-host Daniel Larrison and I are trying to navigate the swamp so you don't have to. I am broadcasting from the thick of it here in Washington, D.C. Mind you, D.C. was literally built on the swamp. So in the springtime, it is a morass of allergies and emerging mosquitoes. And Dan, he's just a stone's throw away in Pennsylvania, close enough to smell it. Today, we'll be talking with Chris Fetweiss, a professor and author of Psychology of a Superpower, Security and Dominance in U.S. Foreign Policy. But first, let's talk a bit about escalation. The last week has seen a dangerous shift in the rhetoric about the way U.S. lawmakers and officials are talking about the war in Ukraine. As you know, the president has just announced another $33 billion in aid, $20 billion of which is military assistance for Ukraine, bringing the total to around $40 billion so far, which is nearly comparable to the total annual operating budget of the U.S. State Department. Meanwhile, a congressional delegation led by Nancy Pelosi traveled to Ukraine over the weekend to pledge unwavering support for Ukraine's victory over Russia. Democrat Adam Schiff, who was on that trip, came back and declared on the media this week that we were in an existential fight for democracy. And if we do not help Ukraine win, Putin's anti-freedom, anti-democracy forces will spill out across Europe and the rest of the world. This isn't just the hyperbolic musings of one Congressman Dan. Last week, Secretary of uh, Defense uh, Lloyd Austin announced that the US goal was to basically to crush Russia signaling that we are moving to a proxy war if we aren't already in one already. So to put a finer point on it, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger came on, Face the nation on Sunday to announce he was proposing a new AUMF to pre-authorize use of force against Putin in the event that Russia launches a chemical or nuclear attack. According to a press release by Kinzinger, we, he says, quote, we must stand up for humanity and we must stand with our allies. As the president of the United States has said, Putin must be stopped. Accordingly, the commander in chief to the world's greatest military should have the authority and means to take the necessary actions to do so. Dan, there probably won't be a lot of energy behind that particular bill. He's a Republican and his party is not in control of the House, but I'm not so sure there won't be a, a similar movement at some point on the other side of the aisle, given Pelosi's seeming commitment to seeing Russia go down in flames. So, what do you think about all of this? It just seems as though um, things are really escalating here in Washington.
1: But yeah, there's definitely a lot of agitation for uh, the U.S. doing more than it's already doing, and as you have pointed out with the the. Amount that's already been provided to Ukraine and the amount that's forthcoming in terms of military assistance, uh, the U.S. is already doing quite a bit, uh, and and U.S. military aid uh, thus far has been a, a major factor in helping the Ukrainian forces to drive back the Russians as much as they have. Um, the 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 agitation to do more, though, I think, is 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 both really misguided and it's based on a basic misunderstanding of of what the goal of U.S. policy should be. Uh, assisting Ukraine to repel an attack is one thing. The, the idea that we can then help them to actually uh, win outright over Russia or, or to to weaken Russia to the point where Russia is uh, at, a, at a, in a position to where it will feel compelled to surrender or something, I think is, is wildly unrealistic. And it's it takes us in a direction that ends up putting them in a corner and causes them to feel as though they maybe that they think they're in an existential fight uh, for their own survival, uh, which shouldn't is not the position we want them to be in because then that will make them much more reckless and irrational. Um, and so anything that pushes them in that direction, I think, is a mistake. Uh, obviously, the the AOMF that Kinsinger is proposing is is particularly crazy. I think because on the one hand he's taking for granted that Russia might use biological, chemical, or nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And then he thinks that the appropriate response to that is for us to then jump into the war, uh, which would then practically guarantee more use of nuclear weapons in response to that. Uh, it's it's a, a very reckless thing. Uh, and, and in general, I, I'm against pre-authorizations of the use of force of this kind. We've seen before how badly that can go for us, uh, whether it's the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution or the 2002 AUMF, where, uh, where Congress essentially signs off on a war uh, before the president has even formally decided on waging it, and simply gives him a loaded gun to go do whatever he thinks is appropriate. Uh, That's not the way that our constitutional system is supposed to work. Congress is supposed to be the one holding the executive in check. It's not supposed to be opening the door for him and and encouraging him to run through it. And so even if we weren't talking about war with Russia, if we were talking about a, a smaller military intervention, I would be against some sort of pre-authorization because that's not how you should deliberate about matters of war it shouldn't be something that congress rubber stamps in advance and then trusts the executive to carry out uh without any other oversight uh the, the other thing that's troubling to me about uh the the position that a lot of people in washington are taking is that they they talk about ukraine as though it is an ally of the united states yes the u.s is providing tremendous amounts of security, uh, cooperation and, and military assistance to Ukraine. Uh, but it's important to understand that this is all assistance that the US is not required to provide. It's something that we're choosing to provide because Ukraine is the victim of aggression. And I and I think that's appropriate uh, within limits. But one thing we, we can't do is then confuse that relationship with an alliance that then obligates us to do more for them. Uh, and, and one of the things that's very sneaky or, or kind of dishonest about Kinsinger's resolution is that he frames it as defending the territorial integrity of United States allies. But Ukraine is the only one that he's talking about, and Ukraine is not a United States ally. I mean, that's the at the heart of the whole issue about U.S. policy in this part of the world. We have so far refused to extend alliance guarantees to them because we don't think that Ukraine is actually worth fighting for because we don't have vital interests in Ukraine. And nothing has changed in the last three months uh, on that score. And so we shouldn't start acting as though things have changed. Um, and, and so that's, I, I hope that most members of Congress will see through that when they look at this resolution, if it does come up to, for, for a vote uh, and, and they really ought to repudiate it uh, outright because they're, 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 there's no plausible scenario where fighting a war with Russia over Ukraine is in the interest of the United States. And, and that needs to be made very clear and, and I hope that the White House also clarifies that the president doesn't want the authority that some members of Congress want to give him uh, because he's not going to use it. And then I hope that that message comes out uh, sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm afraid that the, the horse might already be out the barn when it comes to uh, this idea that, or this misconception that Ukraine is an ally. When you hear leadership in uh, the Democratic Party, like Adam Schiff, going out there on national public radio, which I heard him this morning, right now, as of, as of this recording, it's, it's Tuesday morning. I heard him on NPR saying that, basic, like, he didn't use the word existential, but he basically said, "This is our struggle, uh, you know, for democracy, and if we don't step in and we don't ensure that Ukraine wins." this struggle, that it will pour out beyond the borders of Ukraine. He is invoking the domino theory. And so I feel as though if I'm an American and I'm not really paying too much attention to foreign policy, I mean, I'm not in the, I'm not in the weeds every day and, and, and listening to this theorist or, or that analyst and, and and getting into the nuts and bolts. And I just tune in NPR, you know, for general news or the local news or CNN, MSNBC, Fox news, you have it. And I'm hearing this drumbeat about how Putin represents another Hitlerian figure who, if not stopped, will be a scourge over the earth and that my rights and your rights and the rights of people of, of democratic peoples all over the, of the globe are, are threatened by this man. Um, I, I'm going to just assume that Ukraine is an ally. You know, the, 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 the actual uh, technicalities of the situation are going to go right over my head. And so I, you know, I, I'm with you. I, I wish we could make that distinction. It, it could be more clear, but I feel if our own, uh um, Members of Congress aren't being responsible in making uh, that delineation. I just just don't know if how you how you claw that back in the minds of of the American people who, when polled, believe that we're doing enough or we need to do more for the Ukrainian people because they I, I believe inherently that they they see it as our obligation. now the the good news is, over 70 percent of Americans um, are still against putting boots on the ground and sending U.S soldiers to fight this fight but they do they they want more sanctions on on Russia they want to give more aid more weapons but um, you know sadly that means escalating the fight with Putin you're backing him further into a corner so the chances that at some point, U.S. soldiers will have to fight Russia increase, I believe personally, the more weapons we send over there, the more sanctions we put on Russia, the more we back him into the corner and make him an international pariah.
1: And this comes back to another part that's in the resolution where the resolution talks about restoring Ukraine's territorial integrity, which if taken at face value means fighting until Russia is expelled from all of the territories that they have occupied since 2014. And if that's what people mean by Ukraine winning, then we're looking at a much more difficult and thorny problem than just driving Russian forces out of the territories that they've invaded since February. We're looking at potentially trying to retake Crimea and force the Russians to give it up permanently, when the Russian government now, from their side, believes that that is part of their country. And uh, it seems to me that that makes it much more difficult to get them to come to any kind of peace settlement if they think that they stand to lose that as well as some of these other territories that they have occupied in the last eight years. Uh, that uh, that seems to me to be one of the things where where we're going to run into a much greater risk of escalation beyond anything uh, that we've seen so far. And, and that's why I think direct intervention, especially under the terms of Kinsinger's resolution, would be Uh, extremely dangerous uh, for us and for our actual treaty allies in Europe, as well as for the Ukrainians.
0: Yeah. And isn't it funny that, you know, of all the lessons that we could be learning from our our past wars, we seem to be drawing upon the worst of our um, assumptions and uh, failures. Uh, I mentioned the domino theory, which we know invoking that is just, it's uh, it's folly because we know uh, from Vietnam, is the perfect example, we were, um, we're in that war, you know, um, ostensibly, our government told us to harness or uh, prevent communism from um, raging over the region. And uh, the whole Cold War was set up as, as one um, big domino f- theory uh, that we had to prevent. Uh, now we're being told that the same thing. That if we don't stop Putin here, you know, he could roll over uh, Eastern Europe and even beyond. And you know, most people who are following this, who are experts, even even people who aren't experts, are saying, given everything that we've seen from the Russian military on the ground, that's not going to happen. They they don't have the strength or the power to overtake other countries or to confront NATO. Secondly, this whole AUMF thing—you know—we still have two AUMFs on the books since uh, from nine eleven uh, period. So we have that you mentioned the two thousand two, which was the authorization for the use of military force against Iraq, which has been used um, to justify all sorts of things, including, I believe, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Uh, during the Trump administration. And then you have the 2001 AUMF, which would authorize the use of force uh, against Al-Qaeda and associated forces in Afghanistan. Both of those are still on, on the books. The House voted to get rid of the 2002 and it never went to a Senate vote because it got all tied up, I believe, in um, a defense spending bill right before recess at uh, holiday, uh, you know, the new year holidays, uh, and it just died. And so we can't even get rid of those two. Let's just, we're gonna add another one. Um, and, and with no, um, you know, there's no irony, we're gonna uh, support a, a, another AUMF. Uh, so I, I feel it, 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 this is the best that we got in Congress. It's pretty pathetic.
1: Yeah, well, and speaking of the, the AOMFs, uh, one of the, the things that we've seen, uh, especially with the 2001 AOMF, is how broadly these can be interpreted and how uh, they will be stretched beyond any uh, any sensible meaning of, of what the text says to apply to almost anything that the government wants to use it for. Yeah. And so it it it, while technically Kinzinger's resolution is only – about responding to the use of unconventional weapons, uh, I, I can imagine if such a thing were to pass that it could get twisted or used uh, for other purposes beyond that. And so, you, you really don't want to have something like that on the books. Uh, like I said before, it's, it's a loaded gun just waiting to be used, and and we don't want to be uh, getting into a war with Russia, uh, really under under any circumstances if if we can possibly avoid it. And. Anything that, that brings us closer to that uh, is very bad for the country, and uh, that, that, this AOMF certainly qualifies as that. Yesterday is Christopher Fetweiss. He's Associate Professor of Political Science at Tulane University. He is the author of Psychology of a Superpower, Security and Dominance in U.S. Foreign Policy, Making Foreign Policy Decisions, A Presidential Briefing Book, The Pathologies of Power, Fear, Honor, Glory, and Hubris in U.S. Foreign Policy, Dangerous Times, The International Politics of Great Power Peace, and Losing Hurts Twice as Bad, The Four Stages to Moving Beyond Iraq. Welcome to the show.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having
1: me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, And I I really enjoyed uh, The Pathologies of Power when I read it uh, a while back, but it's still very Uh, Relevant and important book, I think, it it tells us a lot about what's wrong with the way our foreign policy is uh, or what's wrong with the way that it works. Uh, As you explain in that book, uh, U.S. foreign policy suffers from certain pathologies like that of the foreign policy of any other powerful state. Uh, One of these is the obsession with credibility. Uh, Another is the role of fear and exaggerating and imagining threats. Uh, And we know that hubris can lead to, to disaster. We've seen that many times. Uh, looking at U.S. policies today, where do you see these pathologies causing the most harm?
2: <clears throat> That's a great question. Uh, and when you say harm, it could be a lot of different things. Uh, as far as stupid decisions goes, I worry that our credibility obsession is going to f- compel us into uh, pushing the button or pushing the envelope too much In when it comes to this Ukraine crisis. I think we're worrying too much about how our messages that we're sending through our actions are going to affect what Vlad is going to be doing. And Vlad's actions, it seems to me, are more likely internally driven than externally driven. So many people in our side of the pond think that we are more or less controlling what he's doing, or at least we're having a decisive effect on what he's doing. Expanding NATO was, I've thought for a long time, an incredibly stupid policy. But Vlad still had choices to make. It's not like that forced him to do anything. And it's not like today we can get the Russians to sit down at the table and accept some kind of peace deal if we wanted them to it's all it's a lot of people think that we are at the because we're at the center of our universe we're at the center of everybody's universe and that's a natural human psychological reaction we all think that we're most important actor out there and and one of the ways that manifests itself is through our obsession with being credible with having a reputation that is spotless that we always uphold our commitments and sometimes that pushes us into doing stupid things and because uh, and nobody ever worries about our credibility for good choices. It's always our credibility to act and to fight. Uh, and I worry about how uh, people will be, I, th- I think if, you're, if the basic question is which one of our pathological beliefs is likely to be more harmful in the next few years, it's probably that one. Uh, although you can make a good case too that we're worrying too much about stuff. We're worrying too much. Vlad's not coming over here, whatever happens. Is that after this is over, we're not gonna be speaking Russian. Uh, it's not, but it's, if people start getting this big scary thing for us, that might push into stupid things too. So, you know, I suppose that's a roundabout way of saying all of our pathological beliefs may push us into doing, making stupid choices.
1: Right. Well, and, and credibility certainly comes up a, a lot more often uh, in foreign policy debate. It, it is sort mm-hmm. of the the for first and last resort of hawks uh, whenever they want to do something. Yeah. Um, uh, in your discussion, of an, credibility. An, an, an,
2: it becomes, it's, an, it's a means in any rational universe, credibility is a means to get in, to approach ends, but has become now an end in itself. That we act in, in part, on behalf half of our credibility uh, in the hopes that down the line, it will become again a means to achieve an end, but for too many people like NATO itself, they, we, we, we conflate our means with our ends. Uh, traditional tools have become the goals. So preserving NATO is going to become an important goal for us in the next few years as just as maintaining our credibility and our resolve has become a goal rather than a tool. And that kind of talk leads people into acting for reasons that don't really necessarily line up with the national interest. Uh, Once your tools become ends, you have a good chance of acting in ways that are going to be pathological come down the line.
1: And one of the ways that we see credibility deployed uh, most often is is when there are no real uh, discernible national interests at stake. Uh, and so it's always built up into this larger issue of trying to save the entire alliance system, or the world order, or the, the democracy itself. And, and yet, predictions of doom, as you say in your book, uh, predictions of doom that usually accompany apparent losses of U.S. credibility are rarely borne out by events. Mm-hmm. So why do you think credibility arguments continue to be taken so seriously despite their being discredited over and over?
2: I think they have a certain intuitive appeal. It sort of makes sense because, you know, when you're either raising children or dealing with friends, and if, if you have people who always live up to what they say they're going to do, if the parents always come through with the punishment, then the kid is less likely to act that way, act bad in the future. But states aren't children. And it's not going to be the case that they necessarily learn the same kind of lessons that we try to teach children. In fact, there's a lot of people out there studying this question, as you know, and they find that states very rarely learn the lessons that we, whoever we are, try to teach them. That uh, They're not listening in the same way. They're not listening. and They think there's motivations behind our actions that we, we don't even realize. So they don't learn the lessons that we're trying to teach. So it has an intuitive appeal. It seems to make sense that if we always live up to our commitments and everybody knows that, then it will deflect and deter bad behavior in the future. But that's not how life works. A lot of times have their own reasons for acting that believe it or not, have little to do with what we think or how we're going to act. And uh, it's, it's hard. And one of the things we're terrible at in this country is putting ourselves in the shoes of other people and trying to understand why other countries are behaving and uh, as they do. And one of the ways that gets warped, one of the, in the barriers to that empathy is the notion that our actions are going to shape what they're doing in the future. It also makes us it, it, it's empowering. It makes us feel good to think all we have to do to to control the future is to be credible. And then we can control Vlad. We can control the Iranians. We can have better outcomes. It's on our hands, everyone. And that seems to it seems to be very uh, it makes us happy. It makes it sort of comforting that the future is controllable. And when in reality, it's not. And other countries aren't in a lot of ways. So It's an illusion. think that credibility is going to be helpful in the future and because it's never really been helpful in the past it's just hard to tell that it's hard to make people believe it
0: thanks for coming on chris um on that note i was wondering how do you feel do you feel that there was anything that the united states could have been doing i know um that you've warned against this idea that we could shape what russia is doing right now but could we have done something better before the invasion to maybe prevent it from happening?
2: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, The big question in my mind is, what if we had taken NATO membership off the table in a very uh, obvious way? Would that have affected Vlad's calculations? And in the last few months, it doesn't seem like it would have to me. I don't know, who knows? I wish we had. I wish we had taken it off in 1996. I don't understand. It's not like um, I've just spent a lot of time saying we can't control other people's actions, but we can affect them, especially when the, when the strongest player in the system, you get to have the biggest impact on other on how the system works. And expanding NATO was incredibly pointless and stupid and counterproductive. However, in the last few months, in the lead up to this war, I'm not sure it would have made any difference to Vlad if, uh, if we had said we'll never expand NATO, because he thinks we said that in 1991 and 1992. So I'm not sure he would have bought it. I'm not sure there's anything we could have done. And as bad as we are in understanding other countries, I've, I'm doing my best. I can't understand Vlad right now. I don't understand how he thinks this is going to work out for him. And there's really not a whole lot we can do to affect it. And I, I hope we don't start thinking that the Donbass or the Crimea are on our vital national interests because that's an expansion of interest that is way out of control. But I'm not sure, to answer. I I don't know what you guys think. I don't know that we could have stopped this short of trying to stop it with force would have been, which would have been totally counterproductive, or and totally, been absurdly risky.
0: Do you think there are things we are doing now that are counterproductive? Um, the The sanctions, for example. Um, They're trying to corral all of these nations to stand behind us in this existential fight against autocracies. Um, Do you think that that's making things worse and trying to shape or control what Vlad is doing? um, Are we actually being counterproductive in those efforts?
2: I don't think so. I think it's been fairly measured so far in the sense that uh, President Biden is quite clear that there's a line he's not going to cross. Uh, and, and despite how there's, you know, there's hawks thinking that that line is kind of productive in itself, having that line is good. And I think what we've been doing so far is good in this. If it encourages Putin not to do this again and encourages the countries around him, that if he does it again, it's going to go poorly for him, that they don't have. Maybe if the worst case scenario would have been that lightning campaign of four days into Kiev and it's all over, because then panic would have set in in Eastern Europe. And at least I think this will avoid panic. But I th- also think that the most important two players in this drama moving forward are China and India. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I think we should be thinking not so much about punishing Vlad as getting the Chinese on board. If, if, he, if God forbid he makes it a stupid choice to introduce chemical or uh, tactical nuclear weapons, that's going to help put pressure on the Chinese. So I, I, I think what you how you said that was very important about how you know, an emerging democracy versus autocracy axis in the world. That worries me. And if we could get the Chinese on this side of the, they don't have to love us for everything. But if they could just move away from Vlad a bit, just like in the 1970s, if having China on our side would help and to avoid that outcome. That worst case scenario is another bifurcated world, which I think we can if we're not idiots, we can avoid that.
0: You no, know, we've had a, a a bunch of stories uh, at Responsible Statecraft talking about how uh, the majority of countries in the world are not necessarily on board with our efforts to sanction Russia, to condemn Russia. And we're talking, you know, countries who we have considered partners, uh, specifically, you know, the countries in the Middle East who have been reticent on joining the sort of um, democracies versus autocracies train are you surprised that there uh there have been um it's been more difficult to get everybody on board uh whether it be the UN resolutions condemning Russia or just even simple asks not simple but direct right. asks yeah. about you know amping up oil production and which after which Saudi Arabia and UAE said, nah, maybe we're not ready for that. And were you surprised of the reaction?
2: I am somewhat surprised the reaction. It's a very interesting time in U.S.-Saudi relations right now, uh, where we had the, you know, Trump's first trip abroad. He went to touch that orb and maybe the weirdest yeah. moment <laughs> in U.S. foreign policy in a long time. And Biden has taken it. We, there hasn't been a lot of discussion in mainstream circles about how different the Biden administration approach the Saudis has been. Back just this morning, I was reading a good article about somebody was saying we should be, you know, who cares what Saudi Arabia thinks? I was agreeing with that article to some degree, but they're still a very important act. And I have been somewhat surprised. It, it, this is new territory where the Saudis not lining up with us. And a lot of that has to do with, of course, the Iranian issue more than the Russian issue. And uh, but I think over time, it's, if this war keeps going and it looks like it's going to, I don't know how it ends. People have been asking, you know, all the press, they ask, you know, right when it starts how does this end? I have no idea and neither does Vlad I don't think but uh, as it goes on and drags on, I think the pressure is going to be to you know, build on those countries and I think more will start at least going into the abstention camp rather than the active support camp there's mo- there's signs that the Indians are moving that way uh, the, the Chinese one day that there's you know they're all over the place it's hard to tell. Uh, but i think over time the pressure is going to grow on some of those countries that are ambivalent toward this as the as it becomes clear what's going on in ukraine and 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 as it beyond you know as russian p- propaganda becomes more farcical and you know saying you what know, what lev roff said yesterday about zelensky being uh, an anti-Semitic, anti-semitic jewish okay uh, maybe but it all that just makes it, it's hard to to line up with crazy and i think over time it's going to be uh, cruel and crazy are going to be in. Uh, uncomfortable
1: uh, camp to be in. Yeah. One one of the things we've seen from the the Russian government is uh, an example of one of the other pathologies you talk about, which is the the obsession with glory and competition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, and on our side lately, we hear a lot about great power competition where the competition seems to be for competition's sake and without any really well-defined goal otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think the enthusiasm for competition with other major powers, uh, here in the US uh, has has become pathological.
2: Yes, absolutely. It always is. State competition is tend, tends to be pathological and it's going to hurt the little people. But another big psychological issue for the Russians is the effect of losing. And losing has a big impact on societies. And uh, I wrote a book about this a long time ago. But whether it's the American South or the russians after the cold war it hurts people to lose and to be and this is why you know trump is obsessed with never being seen as a loser so he can't admit that he lost the election putin has been obsessed with the loss in the cold war it it, it, it and there's a psychological there are sort of patterns that occur in countries when they lose and it's very it, it has a tremendous impact just think what happened in is this, in this country in the 1970s is after or after vietnam after the loss of that war, it had a huge impact on how what we thought of as, of America, of ourselves. And I think more than anything else, 1991 helps explain 2022. That it's the loss, and it's because it's the same people running it, running the show in Moscow now that very strongly felt that loss, and it's their attempt to try to put to set it right. It would be as if a bunch of Confederate generals had run, had come to power in the United States in the, in the 1890s. They would still be pissed off and they would still be aching about the war.
0: This,
2: I think is this may be seen maybe in another 50, 100 years as maybe not the first shot in the, in, this, in the second Cold War, but the last shot in the first one. And I think that is that's the only way I can really wrap my head around what is happening and what could be motivating the folks to do this.
1: One of the things that you talk about uh, is how states perceive uh, other states, how they develop enemy images of the others. Uh, We're certainly seeing how the Russians have come to perceive us a certain way uh, uh, as an enemy. Um, And as you said, enemy images are not always false, but they can be distortions or exaggerations of hostile intentions. Uh, Which enemy images do you think have become pathological in our foreign policy debate uh, looking at the rest of the world?
2: Well, oh, many for us. And and we for a long time, it was the it, it, during the cold the uh, war on terror, it was the focus on the Iranians. The Iranians had become the, the, the Soviet Union, essentially, of the war on terror. They were they were behind everything. They were the root of all evil. And Putin's making a, a strong play now to come back as the main enemy of the United States. And you could see the effect of that image, that enemy image, that pathological notion of the enemy in Putin's mind. Because one of the things that that image does to you is it makes the enemy seem very strategic and very, very wise and have their hand pulling all the strings in the world. And Putin is obsessed, apparently convinced that the United States and NATO are behind all these color revolutions and behind the uh, the the uh, the coup or the, the revolution in Ukraine in 2014. He sees this as NATO's war, He's, that NATO is behind you, uh, NATO uh, behind Ukraine. That kind of thinking only makes sense if you understand that he is he sees the United States and NATO as an enemy. And then and with that, there's a lot of sort of standard psychological uh, implications. And one of them is the enemy has his tentacles and everything and is pulling everything. So it's what seems like a coincidence. It's really the enemy because they're strategic. They're very well. uh, You know, they, they, they think the long in the long game. They play chess when we're playing checkers. You hear that all the time. You used to hear that about Putin all the time. Putin, well, he's always thinking long term. He's a master strategist. Oh, the Chinese—they think in terms of generations. Uh, no, they don't. They, they're just like us. But the way we—but every enemy. Just think about this. Every single rival we've had in my lifetime—they only understand the language of force. Yeah, maybe. And you know, whether it was back to the Vietnamese, the, the, the in the Middle East, they only understand force over there. Right now. Putin only understands the language of force. And I have dozens of these kinds of examples throughout that that's consistent. Whoever we're struggling against, they only understand force. They're realists. Well, that maybe, maybe that maybe we're every single enemy has been the same for us. Or maybe there's a pattern in the way we interpret our enemies and think about our enemies that warps what's really going on. And it's certainly the way Putin thinks about us, that we only understand force. And he's not going to back. He he doesn't think that negotiations are really going to be effective. He's got to because we only understand force. As long as both sides think that of the other, it's really hard to get to any kind of real lasting uh, compromise or solutions.
1: And we're seeing some of that now uh, again with Iran, where Mm -hmm. even on an issue where there has previously been agreement on the nuclear issue, uh, we we keep stumbling into these obstacles of of, uh, mutual incomprehension or mutual resentment and recrimination. Uh, I mean, for example, over the the listing of the IRGC on the uh, List of terrorist organizations, Absolutely. Uh, which which has become the, the big stumbling block in those talks, uh, and and it, the, the the enemy image uh, really becomes the uh, insurmountable barrier uh, to the kind of empathy that we need to have mm-hmm. uh, to to reach understandings with these other states. Um, what would you really say?
2: Tough. Yeah, empathy is very very difficult. It's difficult to understand the other, and we are particularly bad at it. Not because we're Americans, but because we're stronger. And when you're strong, the the impulse to empathize with the weak is is decreased. You don't really have to understand what they're thinking. You just kind of push them around. They should get in line and because of it, So empathy is always tough, but it's really tough across big power disparities. So we're never gonna understand how paranoid the Iranians are of us. And we're never gonna make too much of an effort to understand them because we just dismiss them as evil and they're small, we should push them around. And they only understand force. Oh, okay, maybe. But we don't. it's just another barrier to understanding them. That having been said, as I've, you know, I've written a lot about empathy, it's hard to figure out really what the Russians are doing, as I said. It's, it's been a big barrier. A lot of people observing the buildup before the war thought, this can't really happen. What would be the point of it? Well, there was another breakdown of empathy here. We couldn't understand what he was doing or why he was motivated, because it happened. And that's certainly what's happening in Iran. We can't understand them. How would we feel if a giant nuclear superpower had backed out on its de- backed out on a deal that it had made and four did five years before? Uh, you know, and, and might back out on it again when if Trump version two happens in 2024 or Don Jr. comes to power or one of these other cretins, we might back out again. So how would the Iranians feel? But we don't think about it. so. It's it's tough empathy is very very difficult. It's a big barrier to anything we're gonna do.
1: I went, and it's always interesting to see how the people who are so obsessed with credibility never seem to worry about when we break our promises and break our agreements with other states. Uh, that right. somehow doesn't count against our credibility. Uh, it only comes uh, comes up when we want to start bombing people.
2: That's right. Credibility only matters when you when you act with action, with violence. It doesn't, Credibility of with our commitments, you know, unless we don't back it up with force. Whenever anybody's talking about credibility, they're talking about using force. So it's a general rule.
1: And I think we'll have to leave it on that note. Uh, Thank you so much, Uh, Christopher Fetwise.
0: Oh, thank you, everybody. Yeah, thank you, that was great. No, I enjoyed
2: it, thank you very much. Very good to meet you.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, Tune in and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.